Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we are three clinical psychologists, Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen, and we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mention in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Diana Hill, and I'm really excited today to talk with our guest, Dr. Laura Ray. And we're going to be talking about her cutting-edge research on clinical neuroscience and the genetics of alcohol and addiction. Dr. Laura Ray is a full professor at the clinical, in the clinical psychology program at UCLA, and she has academic appointments at the UCLA Department of Psychiatry and, and Human Behavior and the UCLA Brain Research Institute. Her laboratory combines experimental pharma, psychopharmacology with behavioral genetic and neuroimaging methods to look at the mechanisms underlying addictive disorders. And then she applies these insights into treatment development. So today we get to talk all about your brain on alcohol, and I'm really excited to welcome Laura. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Diana. It's a pleasure to be with you and and catch up and talk more about our uh, clinical interests. Yeah. So I met you, Laura, in graduate school, and at that time you were uh, interested in addictions, and particularly you were working in alcohol and craving. And what was sort of ironic is that when I met you, our partners were also brewing beer <laughs> in our in our homes while you were studying alcohol. I know a lot has changed for you since then, um, but I, I'm wondering, um, you know, how is it? Can you tell me more about your career path since being at University of Colorado Boulder? Uh, well, it's been quite a journey. It's been, I can't believe, 10 years uh, this summer mm -hmm. since uh, graduating from, from CU Boulder. And uh, really, most of my time, the past nine years, have been at UCLA as a professor there. And uh, it's been quite a journey, uh, really focusing on tenure and getting tenure uh, within the first, you know, five years or so at UCLA um, but also, you know, as, as you know, balancing home life and, and having uh, children, which is such a dream come true, and, and juggling the two. And sometimes it feels like you got it under control, and sometimes it feels like you cannot do anything right. So <laughs> that's been my, my experience, you know, and some days I'll feel really good, I, I got it, and some days it's like, ah, nothing works. Yeah. Um, I think um, that's probably like a lot of moms and, and parents in general. Yeah, I can relate to that. And I was so surprised to see that you have three little ones and um, at the same time juggling um, a very, very ambitious career at UCLA. So I'm, I'm really actually also excited to talk about your research because um, your, your primary focus has been in alcohol research and, and specifically 
some of sort of the intersection between um, how uh, clinical psychology can map onto and be informed by the genetics and the um, neuroscience of addiction. So maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about um, a model of addiction in the brain and specifically how it works with alcohol and then what you've been studying in terms of the genetics of alcohol and what you've been finding in terms of how it informs um, pharmacological treatments. Sure, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. I think, you know, obviously our brains are always changing as we have a conversation. I'm forming new memories, new associations. I'm also referring back to, you know, our time together in graduate school. So our brains are constantly sort of evolving and forming these new memories and associations. What's really interesting about alcohol and other drugs is that those are kind of pharmacological insults. Like we're essentially changing our brain through pharmacology and what a lot of the animal literature tells us is that the brain changes or neuroadaptations that occur mm -hmm. uh, with repeated and chronic alcohol or drug use. And mm -hmm. so what I'm interested in is understanding how the clinical brain changes, understanding mm -hmm. how, you know, people change as a function of, you know, chronic, repeated alcohol and drug use. Um, we know what that looks like because we know that people's primary drive is to use. That's what driving a lot of their behavior. Um, but I'm interested in seeing, you know, what can we do about it? Where mm -hmm. can we break those cycles? Mm -hmm. So what's happening uh, in the brain when somebody is caught in that addictive cycle with alcohol? Well, one of the theories that we have there, primarily from um, the animal literature, but we're starting to study in humans, is that, you know, if you and I make plans to go out to dinner, you know, we're going to, um, maybe think about drinking and we're kind of planning that, oh, okay, maybe I'll have a drink with Diana. And so we're planning this as sort of a goal-directed activity, right? It's something that we're going to do together. Drinking may be a part of it, but we're kind of planning it and we expect that it's going to be fun and we're going to get some reward out of it. So that goal-directedness, that planning something that's going to be fun or reinforcing um, plays a role early on in how people start drinking. But mm -hmm. over Time, more and more what we see with our drinkers is that um, it's less about planning and goal-directedness and it's more about habit mm -hmm. you know five o'clock hits I just start opening my my Bud Light I don't really you know plan it I don't care if Diana's with me if I'm by myself the kids are around so a lot of those kind of changes from you know, really something that is planful and goal-directed towards a habit is part of what we're interested in. Um, and I think that marks the transition uh, from, you know, early use to more chronic uh, dependent states. Mm -hmm. And so is there actually something that is sort of taking over in the brain? I mean, I know that you've talked about, um, and many research have talked about, the mesolimbic dopamine system and how that, that reward you know, circuitry gets activated and almost like you don't have as much of a decision maker around it. So what, what is happening there when somebody is drinking alcohol and they feel like they can't maybe, they're not doing as much planning, but it's much more habitual. Yeah. So one of the, um, one of the pathways that we think changes is that a lot of this goal-directed communication is from, you know, the striatum, as you said, to the frontal cortex, like directing behavior change. Mm -hmm. However, the more goal-directed might be more ventral striatum 
signaling to the frontal cortex to act. Mm -hmm. And at least in the animal studies, they found that, you know, there's a bit of a shift from ventral to dorsal shade, which regulates habits. And that's the area that's signaling that go, let's drink to the frontal cortex. So at mm -hmm. least, you know, in the animal literature, there seems to be the shift from um, ventral to dorsal striatum as a particularly important, you know, kind of pathway that, that changes in the way the brain communicates and, and activates behavior. You know, a lot of this work has been motivated by clinical observation, but also the uh, more prominent biological models that are out there and that have not been tested in humans. So mm -hmm. part of what happens in our field, and you might have identified this in some of your other interviews, is that you have this gap between a lot of the fancier science, if you will, that's very controlled and mm -hmm. it happens in animals or model systems and patients. And part of what we really need to do, and that's why clinical psychology, in my view, is so important, is we're trying to really bridge that gap and mm -hmm. say, you know, this is nice and very, you know, intriguing, but what does it really mean about a patient? So to make this a more concrete example, one of the models that um, is quite prominent is this idea that over time, people drink less to feel good, and they drink more to alleviate um, some of the withdrawal and some of the aversive effects of alcohol, uh, aversive effects from withdrawal. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people think that drinkers are, you know, enjoying themselves, but um, early on there's a lot of positive reinforcement enjoyment from drinking, and you measure that when you give people alcohol. You can actually see um, the curve of stimulation, how much people really, how much more talkative, relaxed they feel. But with the more chronic drinkers, when we bring them to the laboratory, we find that they really are drinking to return to baseline. They're drinking to feel normal. Mm -hmm. And you see that with drug addiction, too, where people say, I just need that hit to feel normal okay. and not to feel good or powerful. Um, so that change in, um, we call it an allostatic change, has to do with uh, you know, the body trying to reach normalcy and allostasis to function. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of two components of alcohol use. One is the stimul stimulatory positive, I feel more talkative, I feel more um, positive emotions, and then after that is the, the letdown. And so it's, it becomes, let they get less of the positive impact of the alcohol and more just trying to ameliorate that letdown or that withdrawal. Is that correct? Right, exactly. And a lot of times people say, well, you know, my loved one does not have withdrawal because he or she doesn't have the shakes. Well, mm -hmm. the shakes are the more really, the more extreme side of withdrawal that, that you can observe, you know, and it can go as far as into a seizure. Um, but really, a lot of people, most people experience what we call some protracted withdrawal, where they feel really uneasy and uncomfortable when they haven't drank for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And that's similar to, say, a smoker. You know, if you observe a smoker in abstinence, they feel really, really edgy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that is part of the protracted withdrawal, kind of anxiety, the discomfort uh, that tends to be ameliorated. And, and really treated, you know, uh, with a drink, for example. Mm -hmm. And does that, will that change if someone remains abstinent for a long period of time? Or is that always the case? Like some of the brain changes you're talking about, are they going to be there chronically for somebody that, that's abused alcohol? That's a great question. One thing that we know 
changes over time, recovers is really the capacity to experience pleasure and to feel normal without the need for um, alcohol or drugs. So mm -hmm. early recovery and really the first, you know, three months or so, we see um, in the brain some recovery, but what we see is that people feel generally pretty flat and they, you know, say, wow, this is really boring. My life is pretty boring. Um, over time, you know, the brain kind of recovers this capacity to experience pleasure and um, sort of that initial anhedonia or like a pleasure that marks the early recovery phase tends to ameliorate and get a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point, you know, some of the vulnerabilities are always there because, you know, some of those changes in the brain um, are permanent. They, they lock in some of the same memory systems. Mm -hmm. So you and I know each other and we always have memories of each other. Um, and those memories are stored. A lot of our drinking memories, not you and I, but people's drinking memories, they are also stored and makes them more vulnerable. So we think that the, there's some elements of the vulnerability that are fairly permanent mm -hmm. and some elements that actually get better. Mm -hmm. And what about teens that drink? Does that, does the age, you know, you think about teen brains still developing, um, does the age at which you know, drinking is occurring, influence the degree to which some of the brain changes occur? Absolutely. I think that's one of the bigger questions that we're after these days. And, you know, NIH is funding large-scale projects called the ABCDs Project, where uh, a, a high number of teens are being followed so that we can essentially tease out that chicken on the egg problem that we have with drug addiction, which is essentially is um, what are the predisposing factors that will make teens more likely to use alcohol and drugs? And what are the effects of alcohol and drugs on the adolescent brain and really young adult brain development? So I think uh, we're hopefully going to have a lot better answers within the next 10 years because there's been a large commitment to to really putting a lot of resources towards answering that question. Mm -hmm. Right now, we know that a lot of teens who are drawn, especially to illicit substances, are very impulsive and they have poor um, affect regulation. Mm -hmm. um, but we, what we don't know is really how the brain changes with repeated um, alcohol use or, or drug use in the way of altering brain development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about your girls at some point as being teenagers and young adults, what is, what is the the recommendation that you're going to give them around drinking? Well, one of the things that um, I tell families and think for my own family, too, is that there is some, um, there's, there's a lot of um, truth in the concept of sort of delaying initiation, mm -hmm. because what we find from the larger literature is that kids who start drinking regularly before the age of 15, they're much more vulnerable to problems. And part of it may be that their brains are not quite ready to make good decisions. And so some of those delaying initiation tactics are actually protective. And I think we, we're sending the message that you can make better decisions as you as your brain matures. Mm -hmm. and we're learning a lot about um, brain development. That being said, we also know that parental monitoring and peer affiliation play a huge role in alcohol and drug use. So, you know, really paying attention, listening, having open conversations 
will, you know, hopefully provide that parental monitoring piece that's so critical and also attending to peer affiliations because kids tend to do what their peers do. Mm -hmm. Right. So monitoring that peer group and making sure that they're connected with a group that isn't going to be doing some high risk behavior is probably one of the best things that you can do as a parent, it sounds like. Yeah. And alternative activities are really important. That's, you know, part of why we worry a lot about kids from um, underprivileged backgrounds is that you worry about the availability of substances and also the lack of alternative activities. Mm -hmm. So a lot of programs I think that have great potential in our communities are the ones that uh, give children and young adults uh, alternatives that are healthy and pro-social. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what does it look like in your lab when you're uh, studying alcohol use? Because I remember so distinctly <laughs> at CU all these posters that you would have up for college drinkers that you would pay them to come in and drink. And I, I did wonder what is going on in there. Are, they, are you setting up little, you know, beer kegs for them and social, you know, kind of a social environment? Or is it more that you're administering through IV? Or does it depend on the study? How, how do you actually conduct an alcohol um, study in your lab? Sure. Well, we are trying to use a host of methodologies to answer different questions and really to also move from the lab to the clinic. Mm -hmm. So one of the major goals really that I have is that the more control research um, is going to inform the next step in the research, which is less controlled and more clinically applicable. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, when we're studying new medications, so we become interested in a, a neuroimmune drug um, because we think that a lot of psychiatric uh, presentations have a, a strong uh, neuroimmune component. So, for example, when we're studying the safety of that drug, we brought people into the laboratory, we gave them the medication, and we combined the medication with alcohol mm -hmm. to make sure that it was safe, right? So we would uh, bring people in every day. They would see the nurse. They would get the medication. And then uh, after they were on the target dose of the medication, we would give them alcohol to an IV. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really helpful for us because it let us, um, you know, it's really established that combining alcohol with the medication was safe. Also, we found that people craved alcohol less and showed less of a desire to administer alcohol um, on the active medication compared to placebo. Mm -hmm. So it was highly controlled for a reason, right? We wanted to be sure that this was safe. We also wanted to know if it had potential to be clinically useful. And what and do you mean by neuroimmune drug? What is that doing? Yeah, so we, we're learning that a lot of our, you know, usual, the way we think about neurotransmitters like dopamine and um, serotonin, obviously they play a big role in communication um, across brain systems, but um, the inflammatory response and the uh, immune response that we have, say, uh, when we get sick, for example, also plays a role in some of the psychiatric uh, presentation. So, um, for example, patients with depression have been shown to be more sensitive to an immune challenge, that they mount a really strong um, in, uh, response to um, uh, inflammation, like inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's become more of an emphasis because for so long we've been focusing on neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin communicating, and now we're kind of balancing that with, say, glial cells and some of our innate immune system and how um, 
it also responds to uh, stressors in our lives and responds to um, alcohol and drug use as well. Okay. So when you're studying a drug like that, it's a very controlled environment. And then do you do more clinically oriented administration as well, where there's social yeah. and you know other contextual cues that are happening around drinking? Exactly. The idea is that if first we can get through the first the, the initial hurdles of demonstrating the safety of the medication and looking to see if it has some initial efficacy in reducing cravings, then you know we just um, proposed a larger clinical trial where we're essentially going to bring in people who want to quit drinking mm -hmm. and we are going to give them this medication mm -hmm. and uh, we hope that it's going to be superior to placebo. We hope it's going to be helpful to them in terms of actually quitting. Mm -hmm. So we move from pretty quickly from the lab to um, a clinical trial where we're testing the efficacy of this medication. It's called Ibutalast. It's not a medication that's available in the mm -hmm. U.S., but it's marketed in Japan, and we get it from a pharmaceutical company um, that's based in Japan and also the U.S., but um, it's a medication used to treat asthma, which is hmm. obviously, you know, has an inflammatory component. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the other ones that you've used in your laboratory that you've looked at for craving? Have you... Yeah, we have looked at a fair amount in naltrexone. There's been a lot of studies of naltrexone as a medication that attenuates some of the high and the reinforcing properties of alcohol and other drugs. So then a number of naltrexone studies. Uh, we looked at Seroquel, which is a pretty typical, uh, uh, you know, medication used widely in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. um, more recently, I think not just our lab, but um, other labs uh, across the country for um, alcohol and for other psychiatric disorders are looking sort of beyond the usual suspects mm -hmm. and find novel um, molecules and novel targets because we are fairly disappointed that the medications we have so far are pretty modestly effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you can you speak a little bit to some of the genetics that you that you've been looking at and how that links to um, some of the subjective experiences of alcohol? use because that was really interesting to me how you're looking how you're linking you know people's subjective experience to actually some of the genes so whether or not you find alcohol to be positive and, and stimulating or whether you have more aversive on the um, downward slope of the blood alcohol level how does that link up with what what you're seeing genetically for people sure yeah one one of the things we know and um a lot of people can report that is that Folks who like the way they feel when they drink are more likely to uh, go out and drink more. Mm -hmm. So um, the way you respond to alcohol, your subjective response to alcohol is uh, longitudinally a risk factor mm -hmm. for uh you know, uh, pretty extensive drinking and development of problems. And so what we found is that there's um, a polymorphism within the mu opioid receptor, and I've been working on this, gosh, since, since grad school, mm -hmm. uh, Really, uh, this has been a really uh, important story. We found that a variation in the mu receptor gene, which plays a role in how we experience reward, um, also plays a role in how we experience the effects of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And folks with a particular mutation are more sensitive to the rewarding effects of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And other groups seem actually have shown that there's a dopamine pathway involved in that, and that folks who have this mutation in the mu receptor gene 
show greater uh, release of dopamine in the striatum when they receive alcohol. So if you bring in, they brought in men um, and they infused them with alcohol and did a PET imaging to quantify the release of dopamine in the striatum and really found those differences to be um, this genetic differences to predict the dopamine release. So it's been a really interesting story um, looking at the brain, genetics, uh, clinical phenotypes, and really trying to put it together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how many people have that um, mutation? Is that a common mutation or is it fairly uncommon? It varies by ethnicity. Uh, mm -hmm. Among individuals of European ancestry, about 20 to 30 percent of folks have that copy. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, more prevalent in individuals of Asian descent and less common in um, individuals of African ancestry. So there's some some variability in 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 frequency by by ethnic background. Mm -hmm. And then would that eventually, you know, say if you could screen people for that genetic variant, would that then inform what type of medication you would recommend for people? Has it mapped onto that? Yes, I think uh, there's been some um, mixed findings on this. There's actually a couple of large studies showing that, yes, if you identify uh, folks who have this mutation of the mu receptor gene, that they would respond better to naltrexone, which blocks um, opioid receptors in the brain. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you have these more sensitive receptors, and then you have a medication that's potent at targeting those receptors, and you have a better overall fit and better, you know, clinical outcomes. So that's been a really exciting story. Um, a couple of studies have said, look, there's clinical benefit to uh, personalized medicine mm -hmm. uh, using naltrexone for these um, carriers of the mutation. Um, other studies, however, have not replicated those results. And you know, in my view, reading this literature, as you and I were talking earlier, there is this earlier phase of drinking that is for reward, that is to feel good. Mm -hmm. And maybe during that window of time, uh, a medication like naltrexone targeted, you know, at the, the G allele carriers, the mutation carriers, may be really um, useful once we transition really far into more chronic and habitual dependent drinking. Uh, it may be that naltrexone just doesn't rescue mm -hmm. if you doesn't rescue their their drinking. Um, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there may be something else that's needed at that point in time, either medication wise, but also potentially psychosocial treatments. Absolutely. And, and I actually think that um, Alcoholics Anonymous and other um, um, mutual health groups have a, a lot of really important uh, uh, wisdom to share, you know, with providers because um, there is a recognition of sort of chronic ongoing management of the disorder that oftentimes you don't get in healthcare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you go to AA, one of the important messages, whether you like it or not, is that you have to attend to your illness on a regular basis and that you're never really cured. Um, some of that may actually be true in that folks who um, have a more chronic illness perspective on addiction will 
do better in the long term. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, traditional healthcare has not made that transition from, you know, acute care to chronic care for addiction. Mm -hmm. So what, what would you say about the disease model of alcoholism? Do you abide by that model? Um, I think it has, uh, you know, some important elements. I think, you know, one of the debates is um, how much of this is sort of a brain disease and what is psychological. I think over the past 10 years, 20 years, we've been learning that, you know, the the boundaries of kind of yeah. mind and body and, you know, are really blurry. <laughs> right. And so I don't know how productive it is to kind of separate psychological from brain phenomena if mm -hmm. we know they're intertwined. Um, so I think there's an element of kind of chronic illness that I think is to everyone's benefit to recognize, um, especially for folks who have this record of, you know, several relapses and, and more of a revolving door pattern of, of, you know, treatment response, it's clear that something has changed in the way um, they operate. Right, right. And what about other substances of, of abuse um, outside of alcohol? What are some of the similarities, you know, maybe about some of the other substances of abuse or addiction, but also differences that you've, you've seen in your research um, on addiction? Sure. Well, it's interesting to me that, you know, one way, as I've seen folks uh, with uh, drug abuse, especially, you know, in Southern California, we see a fair amount of methamphetamine use. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things, and, and a lot of prescription opioid use as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've one of the differences to me clinically is sort of how quickly addiction sort of uh, develops mm -hmm. with some of these highly neurotoxic drugs like methamphetamine and opiates. Mm -hmm. So almost like fast forwarding a film, you know, with alcohol, you can almost watch it and you have a period where people are functional, but they're still a little bit off. And, you know, so you kind of watch it unfold a little bit in slow motion, so to speak, like mm -hmm. that might be, you know, five to 10 years between sort of, you know, heavy drinking to really kind of chronic severe dependence. Mm -hmm. And I think with a lot of these drugs, that window is so short. Like you can, you know, within months of using, folks are in over their heads and, you know, they have a full-on experience of addiction and, and really can control their, their intake. So one of the big differences for me is just how fast mm -hmm. some of these can alter the brain and create an addiction state um, compared to alcohol, which can be a little bit more titrated mm -hmm. and take longer. Mm -hmm. And then what about marijuana? Because that's sort of touted as not addictive in the mm -hmm. general public. And I'm wondering what what you're seeing in terms of brain, if there are this, you know, similar brain changes happening with marijuana as you see with other substances of abuse. Sure. Well, you know, one thing I am really, uh, as a scientist, really open-minded to the potential um, clinical benefits benefits of um, marijuana. But, uh, you know, I want to kind of differentiate that because you can get a lot of benefits with cannabidiol and some of the extracts without people necessarily using mm -hmm. cannabis in the way that we think about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think the jury is definitely out about some of the benefits as parents. We can relate to examples, you know, of 
kids who respond to cannabis for seizures, and that's a really, um, you know, debilitating issue, especially for kids and families. So I think there is a clinical piece there um, that is to be studied, which is, you know, the therapeutic and clinical effects. Mm -hmm. um, for us, kind of now parsing out, going, turning towards, you know, recreational cannabis use, it's really hard to get um, a diagnosis. So, you know, if we're doing this research and you and I are collaborating on something, the first thing I would say is like, Diana, I really don't believe in how much we're going to get out of a diagnosis because when you sit with people, no one thinks that it's a problem. Yeah. So a lot of our diagnosis, you know, how you and I sit with patients, we um, help identify problems and, and understand how it impacts their functioning. And that's how we arrive at an understanding that this is, you know, clinically significant. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, what we see for a lot of these patients is that, you know, marijuana use as a lifestyle is something that kind of fits within their way of living. Oftentimes, however, you know, you will find that significant others will notice the changes. Mm. So a lot of times what you find is that there's a parent who says, yeah, he's still passing his classes at UCLA, but he used to be, you know, an A-plus student, and you know what? He's not going to go to med school because he's getting Cs and, and Ds. Mm -hmm. So there is, I think, a level of um, perhaps, you know, impact that it's hard to quantify, especially if, you know, the users don't feel... Um, you know, it's hard for them to really pinpoint um, the direct effects of cannabis uh, on their functioning. Mm -hmm. So not seeing that same level of clinically significant distress. And often the, I think when with people that are using marijuana, they're, they're getting some kind of benefit from it, from it and sometimes psychological benefit, but not, but also not, um, not maybe noticing the decreased motivation or not caring about <laughs> the decreases in yeah. grades. And, and that's, that's a hard place to intervene because there aren't necessarily significant, um, significant problems that are associated with it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one concept that we think about when we see people is like, what is dystonic to, to them? Like what feels like it doesn't kind of fit in and, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what parts of their behavior is dystonic, right? Like with eating disorders, like do they identify that the weight is an issue or, you know, um, so that's kind of an element um, that I, I worry a lot with uh, cannabis use is that it takes a long time, if ever, for people to recognize that this is dystonic, that this mm -hmm. is really impairing this is really not syntonic with their way of life if you will you know feels like it, it kind of fits in with their lifestyle in a way that's a little bit hard to to get through mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so what is where what are some of the directions that you're going right now in in your research like what is the next step that you're looking forward to it sounds like you have the new clinical trial coming up with the anti-inflammation drug. What else are you, what else are you looking at? Yes, I'm really excited about doing a clinical trial. Uh, we, we have a trial going on now that I'm also really excited about, which is to help people quit smoking and combining naltrexone with Granicline, which is Chantix. And there's all these commercials about Chantix and it works well, um, but it really um, folks who drink and smoke are really hard to treat and they tend to really lapse at much higher rates. Mm. So we're 
trying to have perhaps public health impact by, you know, if this trial is positive, maybe even changing the standard of care for heavy drinking smokers, because Chantix is right now the gold standard. And um, hopefully if, if this trial is positive, we might have something to add. And perhaps the Chantix, uh, Chantix naltrexone combination um, mm -hmm. may help, um, you know, have a, a better success rate for the smokers who drink. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing I think has a lot of uh, public health significance. And we're, we randomize about 100 patients into the trial, and we're actively recruiting folks who want to quit smoking. And it's really rewarding to see people quit smoking. It's oh, a yeah. really wonderful thing to think about, you know, what this is doing for the person and for their family. So mm -hmm. that's yeah. been really fun. Um, and then we have a couple more studies that I'm excited about. We're, you know, kind of doing more kind of basic science around um, translating this sort of habit and go directedness. You know, I think we've been working really hard on trying to understand clinically what that looks like, when that transition happens, ways that can really be informative, you know, to clinicians out there. Mm -hmm. And and what about in your own life? How do you how do you approach alcohol yourself? I'm I'm always so curious when you when you study this day in and day out. <laughs> you know what what is your own what is your own approach? Well, you know we have these guidelines, and I'm I'm you know maybe part of being a researcher is that you like predictability, <laughs> and so we have some really good. Um, guidelines out there for what constitutes, you know, healthy drinking, uh -huh. they parallel well with like, you know, if you read the news, like, um, about say cancer prevention and, and things like that. Um, so the guidelines for men is to not exceed 14 drinks per week and mm. for women to not exceed seven drinks per week and also to not binge. And I was going to say, so not all on one occasion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Yes, exactly. So, you know, you don't want to have all seven drinks on the same day. You never want to have more than three drinks if you're a woman, four mm. if you're a man. And, of course, if you space them out within, you know, longer period of time, you're not ever going to get super intoxicated. So, you know, I, um, I haven't had to think about it too much, but I, you know, I like to think about, uh, my intake, uh, along those parameters and thinking like, you know, um, I want to stay within this healthy limit, you know, of under seven drinks. I think that that's plenty of alcohol. And some weeks I might have none and some weeks, you know, I might have seven, but you know, I think those parameters are there for a reason. I think they're developed, you know, in a large scale, like public health mm -hmm. um, perspective, but I think they are informative for the individual too, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's been good for me and also been good to communicate to a lot of people because they come to treatment and they think that abstinence is the only model. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you work with a lot of patients that come from all walks of life and there's no one size fits all, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of what we find in addiction too is that abstinence being the only model um, you actually lose a lot of people who could make gains mm -hmm. with a moderation um, goal mm -hmm. seems like it comes down to moderation for a lot of things in terms of food and substances and exercise and you know all sorts of things that staying in that sort of that moderate level um, and that it really is dimensional it's not an either or kind of um, situation and what, you know, just also, it might be helpful for you to talk about, you know, some of the basic screening tools for our listeners in case 
they are concerned about themselves or a loved one that may have some alcohol use problems. Um, I know, you know, previously just using the cage has been one that I use in my practice, but I'm wondering what kind of quick screening tools you would use um, to see if maybe somebody would be beneficial, benefit for them to, you know, meet with a provider or, or, or investigate more about treatment. Yeah, we, um, you know, we have, I think, good screening tools as well. The audit is the alcohol use disorder identification test. That's one that's developed by the World Health Organization. And it's pretty easy to score, but, you know, a lot of providers might have that in their offices. Any score over eight uh, would indicate that further assessment is recommended. Also looking at the consumption guideline, the audits does ask how often and how much people drink. So it's kind of built into that. Mm -hmm. uh, but attending to the 714 numbers that we've talked about and also the binge um, component. I think that's all useful. When it comes to drugs, I will say um, the gold standard is uh, urine tox. So I think, you know, mm -hmm. providers who are well-meaning and, and hardworking in the communities, you know, we are, we learn to trust our patients. That's mm -hmm. part of what we do is we develop report and we develop trusting relationships. Unfortunately, um, with drug use, you really trust the, the urine tests, you know, you really trust those uh, biomarkers because there's so much incentive to lie. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you want to document some recovery on your patients out there, um, really your, your notes are no good, if you will, unless there's a good toxicology screen happening. Mm -hmm. That's what I patients all the time. If you want this to really hold water and be helpful to you, let's do regular talk screens so that we know how our treatment is working. And I will put, I'll find the audit and put a link to it um, if it's if it's linkable, if it's um, free out there on yeah. our website. And then I also might ask you for just some general um, resources that I can add to our website too, if people want to go there to um, look for places for support or you know, organizations that may be helpful, um, either if you're a provider or if you are somebody who's concerned about yourself or a loved one uh, that's looking for treatment. And great idea. And I think I, I would just add that, you know, we need to do more of that as a community, as scientists and clinicians. We need to get the word out there about what's evidence-based. And um, I think NIH is starting to turn the corner on this too. You know, we have some task forces to really make resources more accessible to patients. And of course, I'd be happy to share a lot of public free resources that are based on, on research evidence um, that can really benefit people out there. I would love that because it often doesn't get trickle down to those of us that are practicing in the community. Um, you know, so you're doing all this great research and it needs to get disseminated to the actual practitioners out here that are um, working with people. So that would be wonderful if you could send me some of those resources. And if people want to contact you or maybe just are interested in even participating in one of your studies, what would be the best place to find you? Sure, yeah. Um... You know, if you Google Lara Ray UCLA, you should have uh, hopefully access to my laboratory, my personal page, uh, email address, and and, sound, uh, and and phone number for my office. So um, we routinely get calls, and we make an effort to call everyone back. Um, just today, I was talking to a parent who was just concerned, has a child, uh, a 19-year-old who was admitted to UCLA for uh, drug-induced psychosis, and she just 
to talk and she was really worried and and you know as a parent i completely get it um so even if it's five or ten minutes um but it's productive um that's what we're here for and our research is really funded by taxpayer dollars so um and we are a public university so we get a lot of support from from you know, uh, taxpayer dollars. Yeah. Well, I am so grateful for you, Laura, to be out there doing this work. It makes me feel like really, um, just excited about what's going to be coming in our future in terms of more individualized medicine. And, um, also I'm just really excited that you're my friend so I can call you when my son starts drinking <laughs> and I need some support. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you, um, you're just doing really, um, meaningful work and, it's such a pleasure to talk with you and reconnect with you today. And thank you so much for, for joining us. Oh, it's really my pleasure, Diana. I'm really proud of you and, and really excited about the things you're doing and, and just getting the word out there. And uh, really, it's such an important part. And I don't think we get enough training on this as psychologists, uh, but hopefully with your work and um, my work, we're going to, you know, turn things around and, and, and disseminate um, good information that can, you know, help people out there. Well, thank you. And we'll be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.